Well, let's, uh, let's open up our Bibles and prepare our hearts for a time of studying God's Word. We're in Hebrews 6. We're going to finish Hebrews 6 today. Um, last week, we really finished looking at the great, the great warning of, of chapter 6. The, uh, don't need to go into recapping that, really, because we've really been looking at that since the end of chapter 5 for several weeks, so I think we've exhausted all that we possibly can drain from uh, those verses there. But just for the flow and the context, because chapter 6 here continues, I want to just revisit the author's final thoughts that he gave us last week to those uh, really to whom the warning was addressed. And it's in verses 11 and 12, if you just look at those two verses just to begin with, of Hebrews chapter 6. He says this, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So remember that he is now calling these people to faithfulness, to diligence, to, to, to pursue Christ and a full relationship with him, that they won't go back to being sluggish. Remember these people, that word sluggish was mentioned back in chapter 5, verse 11. We looked at that for a whole, a whole Sunday. It meant spiritually lazy. Don't go back to that. He's comparing that to those who, through faith and who, through patience, actually inherit the promises. And so it's really a, a message today on those two things, that he wants them to have diligence to the full assurance of hope that they might inherit the promises. It's really on those two things, hope and promises, which the author wants his readers to consider. And I don't know, anyone ever made up a special promise of something really good to another and was able to keep it? Um, Anyone made promises? No one's one's made a promise. Okay. (laughs) But if you did make a promise, did you see kind of the person you promised it to, how that affected them? You know, we really recently went to Center Parks with the kids. Months and months ago, we made promises to our kids that we're going to take them to Center Parks. And, and what happened as over the course of, you know, weeks, we started to talk a lot about it at the table. We'd look at different events we're going to do and, and you know, we're going to eat here and we're going to do these things. And, you know, there was anticipation. There was excitement. They were looking forward to it. Cambria at the end was just going, oh, I just can't wait. I just can't wait. Well, that's what hope is. It's, it's an expectancy. I just can't wait. And God wants us to have that kind of hope. I just can't wait. An excitement. I want this to happen. Um, and, and that's a good thing. But when we look at the kind of promises humans make, we didn't always keep promises. We, we do fail sometimes on making promises and fulfilling promises for a couple of reasons. One, we're fallen, sinful human beings, but we also live in a fallen, sinful world and a world that's always changing, a world that we can't control. How many of you had great, amazing plans and then the pandemic happened, right? It all went out the window. See, we really can't trust in much fully in this world. We can't really get true and lasting hope in in anything, but we can in the promises of God, which is his whole point. When God makes a promise, it's anchored by his character. We can trust in God's promises because of who he is. That's really the theme of this whole section. It's the faithfulness of God, and it is the integrity of his character. It's the supreme confidence that we can have in God's promises based on who he is. And that is why the author, back in verse 9, expressed his confidence. Look at that in verse 9. 
But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. Let me ask you, was he confident that, that better things, that, that things that accompany salvation would belong to these believers based upon their faithfulness or God's? Because look what he says, for God is not unjust. You see, he goes right to God. Because of who God is, I am confident about these things. See, we can have full confidence about these kinds of things because we base it upon the promises of, of God. And so really, this is the question that he, he's really trying to answer in this, this whole passage. Um, can we trust in the faithfulness of God? And to answer that question, he takes us to an example from the Old Testament of someone who trusted in the promises of God and through faith and patience inherited the promises. And the example is Abraham. Now, Abraham is called the father of all who believe. So if you believe today, you have a father named Abraham, which is why I think we used to sing that very annoying song, Father Abraham had many sons. Do you have that song here? And it would go on and on and on. Yeah, okay, right? Father Abraham, he is your father because of of a spiritual aspect of that. Galatians even says that everyone who is of the faith, we are sons of uh, Abraham. Why is he the father of our faith? Because he is really the supreme Old Testament example of one who trusted in the faithfulness of God, okay, and in the integrity of his character. And in, in so doing, he inherited the promises of God. So the hope of the promises gave him endurance, and the author in this passage calls that hope an anchor of the soul, which is the title today, an anchor of the soul. Our souls need to anchor to something that we can truly rely upon, don't we? We really need to have a firm anchor in something, and God's promises are an anchor for our souls. And in the example of Abraham and really in the rest of this passage, we're given three reasons. I'll just give them to you to start. But then we'll kind of go through them as we, as we go through this passage. Three reasons for trusting in the faithfulness of God, trusting in his promises. We're going to look at his person, his purpose, and his priest. So we'll look at it today. Let me read the passage, and then we'll ask for the Lord's blessing on our time. We're looking at verses 13 to 20 of Hebrews chapter 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath." that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word to us today. Your word is more precious than gold. It is sweeter than the honeycomb. Lord, it is a delight to be in your word today with your church. 
And Lord, we just pray that today as we look at such a sweet thing as your faithfulness, as hope that we find in Scripture, even on the heels of a message of hope by Franklin Graham, Lord, that you would speak into the hearts of your people. Maybe there's people today that really, really need to be reminded of the hope that they have in you. We don't have hope in this world. We have none. We only have hope in you. So I pray that your spirit would be with us. You'd guide us into truth for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's just look at the first point here, and it's his person, his person. The reason that we can trust God, first and foremost, and the first point he wants to make, it's his person. Look at verses 13 to 14. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. Now, this uh, quote, surely blessing I will bless you, that is straight from Genesis chapter 22. And as you can see here, the author is very brief. He just quotes that little verse, and he doesn't recount the entire history of Abraham. He just plucks out one little verse from the history of Abraham. He just reminds them of what God said to Abraham, but he doesn't even tell us at what particular point he said that. He just puts the quote. Now, I think talking to a well-educated body of Jews, he probably didn't need to elaborate much. They were well-educated on who Abraham was and what he did and what he said and and all of that. But for us today, I can't be really sure everybody here really knows all that Abraham did and all that Abraham said and really the, the history. I'm going to recount it today because I think it's important that we understand who Abraham was. After all, he is our father. And we see why the author is quoting from here. And to do that today, we're going to have to go to back to Genesis chapter 11. So if you turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11, I'll, I'll try to uh, make this brief and, and as painless as possible. Uh, but we're going to just see, where, who, who is this guy, Abram? Where did he come from? Well, we're introduced to Abram, and that's his name, by the way, Abram, in Genesis chapter 11. We find out here that he was a descendant of Noah's sons. So yes, Noah and the ark, his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. He's a descendant of Shem. And we are told that he dwelt in Ur, which was an ancient uh, Chaldean city in Mesopotamia. And he dwelt there with his wife, Sarai, his father, Terah, and his nephew, Lot. And uh, a very important piece of information is given to us in verse 30. So I want to start there in Genesis 11, verse 30. It says this, but Sarai, that's her name then, and uh, that's uh, Abram's wife. Sarai was barren. She had no child. And that's very, very important that we start there remembering that his wife did not have a, a child. That's a key piece of information. But then we're given an account of the, uh, a family move. They pick up and they move. In verses 31 to 32, it says, And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife. And they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Two things we can find from this. One is, I'm really glad we don't live to 205 years anymore. (laughs) <laughs> and, and secondly, is there's a stop. We're told that he was to go to the land of Canaan, but here they went to Haran, and there he stopped. And as you look at this, I want you to take a look at the map really briefly here. 
Got a map. This is uh, the travel of, of, of Abram. Right over here, this is uh, Mesopotamia. This would be modern-day um, Iraq area. All right. He makes this travel all the way up to Haran on his way to Bethel. Now, this is the, the natural way that, that uh, people will travel, and, and you probably know this, but just to remind you of this, that space between there, that straight line that would be a nice quick route rather than up and around, is the Arabian Desert. And yes, you could go there, but you would die because there's no water. It's very hot. But this travel is called the Fertile Crescent, the Fertile Crescent. And so you're able to travel up through lush land and have water and, and food, and that's the route he took. Uh, he couldn't just go straight across. So it is not so unnatural that he ended up in Haran, and his father died in Haran. And so that is the direction that he uh, went. Now, why did he go? What is the whole purpose of his move? Was he trying to make an upgrade and get a better building? What was it? Well, chapter 12, verse 1 says this, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Now it says this, We are told that the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country. In the past, he'd already told Abram to move. And when did he say this then? When did that happen? Well, Stephen, in his speech in Acts, actually clears this up. Remember, Stephen is recounting the history of uh, uh, the, the Jewish nation to the Jews that want to stone him. In Acts 7, 2-4, he says this, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, okay, where he began. And he said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. And then he came out of the land to uh, the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. So he just recounts it very simply. He went to Haran, his father died, and then he moved on here. And the reason he made the whole move is because God had appeared to him. Does that make sense so far? So God came to Abram. Abram, let me just point this out, was in Mesopotamia coming from a really kind of a pagan background there. And he uh, moved, not because he went to God, but because God went to him. All right? God initiates this. Then look at the uh, promise that he gives them. It continues in verse 2 of Genesis chapter 12. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here we get an introduction to the promise. Now, I know Resolved um, has been going through Genesis, and Abram's been a while ago now. But I remember the kids all going through Abraham and the, the history there. And, and uh, Dave uh, Farnham and, and Stacy uh, did a great job of taking them through this very, very great detail. And so hopefully I'm, I'm staying in, in line with the way they taught this as well. But I'm, I'm uh, in, increasing it a little bit here just for the sake of, of, of time. Because there are four elements that um, really become more specific later on. Right away when you look, you can kind of see three elements of uh, the promise, uh, the land, nation, and blessing. But ultimately, there are four. And the first is seed, okay? And that becomes more specific later when the covenant is reiterated. But it really looks back to Genesis chapter 3. You remember when um, God is cursing the serpent? He says the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman would be the one to crush the head of the seed of Satan. So it really harkens back ultimately to that. And Paul tries to bring connection uh, through, uh, through that in Galatians 3. He connects that seed 
ultimately to one person, to Christ. Look at Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So Paul is trying to say, ultimately, that promise given to him about the seed, uh, one would come, and that would be uh, Jesus Christ. And it becomes more specific in Genesis 22. So hold on, we will get there. But right now, you don't see the word seed, but it is part of it. The second thing you see is a land, right? He's going to give him a a land. And in in verse 7, you see it there in Genesis 12, 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. Land. Now, you really see two things. You see seed, because you see descendants, and you see land. So both are there. Also, he's going to make of him a great nation, so there'll actually be a nation one day, like they are now. And they will receive divine blessing and protection and actually would bless others. Look, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. God is going to be the divine protector of his descendants. Are there descendants of Abraham that have seemingly received divine protection all through their existence? (laughs) Can anyone think of an example? Israel remarkably has survived all of these years through so many persecutions and difficulties. Why? Divine blessing and protection. And because of that, then they would remain and be a blessing to many families all over. Genesis 4 to 5 show us the response of Abram. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now mark that in your heads. We get an age of Abram. He's a nice, young, spry age of 75, ready to travel the world, okay? And in verse 5, it says, Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, and his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the whole people whom they had acquired to Haran, And they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. So we have uh, one of God's promises to Abram that was that he would uh, make from him a great nation and that in him all all the nations, all the families of the earth would be blessed. But keep this in mind. He's 75 years old and he has no children. His wife Sarai has no child. We were told that. Now, later in chapter 13, Lot and Abram separate. I won't read it just for sake of time. They separate from one another, and God reiterates his promise to them, uh, even though they still had no uh, children. And just a quick little section of that, Genesis 13. Look at verse 14. This is Genesis 13, so we'll kind of move through this as we go. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants... And here's a key word, forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. So there again is a reiteration of the promise of the land. Now, many things start to happen. Abram's nephew Lot, he is captured in a war that's going on between these warring kings, five against four. It's a wonderful, you know, adventure story. You can read about that, okay? And we will actually look more into it next week because it is after that that Abram runs into this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, which we're finally coming back around to, and we'll look at him next week. But Abram's been in the land for 10 years now. He still has no child. And so when we get to Genesis 15, this is key now. God makes a covenant with Abram. Now, he had introduced the promises to Abraham, Abram, sorry, but in Genesis 15 is when he makes the covenant. Now, let me read it to you. 
Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. So, so not his own wife, but another one born in one of his household. That's his only heir. And so God says this in verse 4, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body. So here we go again, to seed shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Now that is when righteousness was credited to Abraham. Why? Because he did so many great works? Because he was circumcised? No, Paul makes that point later on. He's not circumcised till later, which is the sign of the covenant. He was made righteous because of his faith, his belief in what God said, even though it sounded incredible. He's old. His wife has no child. And yet he's saying, you're going to have descendants like the sand of the seashore. You won't be able to count them. They're going to be so abundant. All right. Now, how is this a covenant? Well, God establishes his promises to Abram here that he just made with a very strange ceremony. And when you read about it, it's really, really, it's wild. But to ratify the covenant with Abram, God has him cut these various animals into pieces. He cuts them in half and he puts them on two, two sides. Really gross, really bloody. I'm really glad we don't do these things anymore, right? Oh, you want to buy a house? Well, go, go cut some animals in half and we'll... No, no. He puts these animals in half and he puts them uh, on these two sides. And we're told in Genesis chapter 15, verse 17, this. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. Now, that's a very strange uh, thing um, that we see here, this smoking torch, this, this oven that goes between. Let me just explain kind of the, the custom that would, uh, this has been referring to here. Oh, and actually look at verse 18. It says, on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. All right, and this is, that, this is him ratifying the covenant, and he reiterates it. To your descendants, I have given this land. Okay, so this is a covenant, but it's a strange strange custom. Ordinarily, there'd be two parties to a covenant, and both parties would walk between the cut pieces of the animals to symbolize their mutual obligations to fulfill their part of the covenant. But this smoking oven and torch appear and walk between the covenant. They're symbolic of God's presence. Now listen, look at this. This is so important. Only God walked between the pieces. Abram didn't. It was God that walked between the pieces, which means that the total responsibility for fulfilling the covenant, which is what people miss here, okay, was God's. It was not Abram's. Yes, he made a covenant with Abram, but the obligation to fulfill it was God's and God's alone. So three times now God has reiterated his promise to Abram and he's even ratified a covenant with him. But as time wore on, remember, time goes on, you're just in this natural world, right? You're living your life. No child comes. And you know, you're getting worried. God said a promise. You know, he promised it's going to happen. He even made a covenant. Where's the child? Where's the child? And sometimes, lady, I don't mean to heart, but sometimes women get a little patient with these things. And his wife got impatient. And she said, all right, maybe God has another way to do this. And so she took matters into her own hands. And she offered her maidservant, Hagar, to Abram. Says, maybe the child's supposed to come through, through her. And so Abram agrees, and Ishmael's born. But Ishmael's born, 
and he's a result of just that that um, that connection, but not uh, he's not a result of of the promise that God had made. He's not the one that God had promised this Ishmael uh, son. Now, this happened when he was about eighty six years old. Eighty six years old. Now they have Ishmael. Thirteen year, more years pass, and God comes to Abraham again when he's ninety nine, and we come to Genesis chapter seventeen. And this is what he says to him in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. And then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you. Notice this, my covenant, not our covenant, my covenant. And it's with you. And you shall be a father of many nations. There it is again. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I made you a father of many nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. So there really it is again a hint of the seed. The seed is going to come from uh, Abraham. In fact, he even changes his name to make a point. His name was Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, father of a multitude, father of many. Now, one more appearance is made, and this time, Sarah is actually present, and she overhears the conversation. It's chapter 18, verse 10. Verse 10, it says, And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So here we are again. The author makes a point of saying she could not have a child. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Remember, this is God's covenant. It's his promise. He says, Why did she laugh? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. So there it is promised again. And guess what happens one year later? The son of promise is born. And that takes us to chapter 21. Skip ahead to chapter 21. This is a year later. Abraham is 100 years old at this time. And it says this in verses 1 through 7. We'll just look at this, and this will bring us up to where we are. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, as he had said, as he promised. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded of him. And now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. And she also said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, for I have borne him a son in his old age. She is beside herself. Neither of us, we can't have kids. I, I'm past the age of childbearing, and look what God has done. I've had a child. She's amazed at it. So let's recount now. He's 100 years old. How old was he when he departed Haran? Even remember that? 75, that's right. So 25 years have passed. That's a long time to wait for a promise, Right? Kids, 25 years from now, we'll take you to center parks. I mean, that's a long time to wait. <laughs> Who would want to wait around for that? Now, listen, keep your finger in Genesis because we're actually not even to the quote yet. 
But I want to go, so keep your finger there. We'll come back to Genesis 22, but go back to our passage really quick because this really brings us to verse 15. Look at verse 15. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Yes, he did, after 25 years. And we, I skipped a lot of history there, right? There's a lot that happens. We have the origin of Abram, the initial promise given to him. We have the travels of Abram. But listen, he went through trials. He went through wars. He went through doubts, which led to the Ishmael being born. He went through all those things. And after all those ups and downs of Abraham's life, in the end, he simply needed to trust God. That's it. He just needed to, to remember what God had promised. Now, the promise, this, this, the promise is not the key point of what the author is trying to make in verses 13 to 14, because it's something else. It's something else that God had never done before. It's an oath. He made an oath. In fact, the oath is quoted for us in verse 14. Surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. Now listen, God has not actually said that yet in our account. We stopped at Genesis 21 with the birth of Isaac, and nowhere have we seen that phrase, surely blessing I will bless you, multiplying I will multiply you. The reason is that doesn't come till chapter 22. So go back to chapter 22, and this is probably one of the most well-known stories about Abraham uh, of any. Now we can call him Abraham because he is, right? In Genesis 22, he's got his son. He's got the son of promise. He finally has him, and look look what God says to him in verse 2. Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. You got your son? Happy for you? Great. Take him to a mountain, and I want you to kill him for me. I want you to offer him as an offering. Now, he's a young man at this point. Not Abram. (laughs) Isaac. And notice what it says. So Abraham rose early in the morning, and he saddled his donkeys, and he took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. He split the wood for the burnt offering, and he rose, and he went to the place of which God had told him. No questions. We don't have any argument. We don't have a Moses saying, oh, but Lord, but Lord. Just, he just goes. He just goes, and he, and, he, and, he, and he does this thing. It's incredible. And you, might, you know the story. I won't read the whole thing for sake of, of time. He actually gets Isaac up there. He raised the knife, and then what happens? The angel of the Lord stops him. Abraham, Abraham, what, what is it, Lord? Amazing. He stops him. And this is what he says in verse 12. Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God since you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Incredible, isn't it? He stops him and said, I know that you fear uh, the Lord. And it's incredible. He's able to, he's able to, to live because of that. And um, I want you to look at something because it gets us to the quote. Because of that, the angel Lord calling him there, the angel Lord calls to him again in verse 15. Then the angel Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven. The first time was to stop him. This is the second time. In verse 16, it says this, And he said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of your enemies in your seed. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now listen, the author only quoted, surely I will bless you and blessing I will multiply. He only quoted that bit. He only quoted that bit. And he also pointed out the fact that God swore, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord. Amazing. Now Hebrews chapter 11 says this. I just want you to look at this connection here. Hebrews 11 says, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it is said, In Isaac, your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, 
from which he also received him in a figurative sense. What he's saying is, he's like, it's almost as if Isaac came from the dead anyway, because I was as good as dead, right? Sarah's womb was as good as dead. And so if God wants me to kill him, he's going to raise him from the dead. He's going he's gonna to do that. That's how confident and sure he was in the promises of God by that point. And a clue to that is in Genesis 22, verse 5. And I love it. Remember, he took two young men with him before he took Isaac up the mountain. Look at it back in 22, 5. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and the lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Now, why would he say we when he knew God commanded him to kill him? Because of what Hebrews said. He just thought God's going to raise him from the dead. And I was still coming back with my boy because he's the son of promise. You see, it doesn't matter how crazy of a promise God makes, he's going to fulfill it because of who he is. It's the character of God. What's the point of all this? What is the author trying to make? What's the point? Well, God was so pleased here with Abraham's obedience that he, he made an oath. He swore by himself that he would, he would indeed fulfill his promises to Abraham. Look at Genesis twenty two sixteen again. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Now listen, here's the key. The oath is different than the promise. The oath and the promise are not the same thing. The oath is different than the promise. God had already promised, and when God makes a promise, that's enough. God doesn't need to do anything beyond a promise. When his word speaks, that's it. That's all you need. But listen, men make promises, don't we? Yet we don't always keep them. And so sometimes men will try to add weight to their promises by confirming it with an oath. They'll say, well, I swear on my mother's grave, right? I I, I swear, they, they swear on something greater than them. Going back to our passage, that's where the author goes with this. Look at verse 16. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. See, men do this. We do this because we know our promises a lot of times are rubbish. Our word is, our talk is cheap. And so men will just add to it oaths. I'll swear by, the, that was a common New Testament thing. We'll swear by the altar, swear by the temple, swear by the gold of the altar, swear by the high priest, swear by God. Whatever you swore by that, boy, that confirmed it. And it, for you, it put an end of dispute. You could not question my promise. It was ironclad because I swore by the high priest. When Abraham passed this test of faith, God decided to to accommodate himself to men. He wanted to confirm his promise with an oath. Isn't that amazing? God did not have to do that, but he did. This was due to the unreliability of human promises, not because of the unreliability of God's promises. God cannot swear by something greater than himself. So notice what it says. When God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Who could God... Who could God swear? I swear by the, the, by me. I swear by me. That's what he did. Because he could swear by no one greater than himself. There is nothing greater than God. Amazing that God would even accommodate himself to weak men. But he does that over and over and over again. And when God made that covenant back in chapter 15, since he was the only party to walk between the animal sacrifices, the covenant being between himself and himself, and, and, and himself alone, God's promises did not depend on faithfulness of anyone but himself. That's it. But the oath makes a, a significant point. His oath makes this promise a unique promise. He promised to bless them, to multiply them as the stars of the heaven, 
and as the sand which is on the seashore. And again, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That's a huge promise. And you, you see, this blessing is supposed to come to all the nations of the earth, to, to everybody. Now, the immediate promise was already fulfilled with the birth of Isaac. But the ultimate promise, the ultimate fulfillment of it would come through Isaac's descendants or his seed or through Jesus Christ, which is the reason for the oath. It's a unique promise. God tagged on an oath to the promise, not because he needed to, not because the promise needed it, but this promise is so unique and it also accommodated to the weakness of men in their unreliability when it came to promises. And what this oath does, it makes it permanent and it makes it indisputable in the eyes of men. What God has done is he's proven himself faithful to his promises. And he's proven himself faithful to his promises for Israel. Yes, even in the midst of their repeated failure to remain faithful to him, Israel was not chosen because they were, you know, a, a key uh, people. They were a people best suited to faithfully follow God. None, none of those things. In fact, Deuteronomy 7 reveals that to us. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, it says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all the peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because you would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, Abraham reiterated and promised to Isaac and then to Jacob, God made an oath. And because God made an oath, he's sticking to it. Why was Israel chosen? To show that God is the one who is always faithful. Because he would keep the oath which he swore to the fathers, we're told. You see, it's because of God's faithfulness and not theirs. It's because of God's faithfulness and not ours. That's why we know God's not finished with Israel, folks. He's still using Israel. Why? To prove his faithfulness. He can't be done with Israel. But this is the nature of God's promises. They're indisputable. They're absolutely trustworthy based upon the character of God. He is faithful. It's his person. Do you see all that? But secondly, we can trust in God because of his purposes. His purpose. Look at verse 17. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. Now, there's a few big words in here. So I don't want to rush by those, especially for our young listeners, okay? Let's look at that word more abundantly. Parasoteron. It means exceeding over and above or more than necessary, okay? God did more than was necessary. His promise was enough, wasn't it? When God speaks, that's enough. But he did more than was necessary. That's what he's saying. He wanted to determine to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise something. He wanted to go above and beyond what was necessary to show something to those who would inherit the promise. What did he want to show them? The immutability of his counsel. Big word, immutability, isn't it? This word, immutability, amatothatos. That's a hard one, amatothatos. Toss that around all week long, right? Amatothatos. It means unchangeable, unalterable, or absolutely fixed, okay? It's only used two times in the New Testament, right here and in the very next verse. So it's, it's just used here. God is immutable. It's, he's, he's unchanging. That's the nature of God. It's one of his many wonderful attributes. He doesn't change. Remember our verse we, we started with this morning? God's faithfulness, right? We're not consumed. Why? Because he's not changing. That's the nature of God. James 1.17 says this, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, and it comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. 
He's referring to the celestial bodies, the sun, the moon, and the stars. He says, when you, when you look at those things, they have different patterns of movement. They have rotation. There are variations of change from uh, dark or day to night. When the rotation happens, that brings about shadow or light. But he says, yet in God, there is no variation. There is no shadow of turning. He doesn't rotate and change. He's not dark one time and light the next. God is unchanging. He never changes. That's his nature. He's immutable. Malachi 3, 6 says, for I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. (laughs) Aren't you glad God doesn't change? Because if he did, boy, he would have consumed Jacob and probably a lot of us. He's unchanging. But there's something else about him that is unchanging. We're told that it is the immutability of his counsel. That's the third word I want to look at. Counsel is boule. It means purpose or will. And we're looking at his purpose today. God doesn't change his purposes or his plans or his will. They stand, they stay forever. His plan for Israel is unchanging. Do you meet people that try to change his plan? (laughs) Say God just changed it somewhere in the middle and said, no, he just took those promises and gave them to the church. That doesn't go with the character of God. He's unchanging. And he made promises that were forever everlasting covenant to Israel. Somehow we miss those things. God doesn't change his purposes. Psalm 33, 11 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. See, God doesn't renege on his promises. We have a tendency to do that, but God doesn't do that. If he speaks, he makes good on what he's spoken. So the oath confirmed that his promises are unchangeable. That's what he's saying. And then verse 18 says this, That by two immutable things... So there's a word immutable, so unchangeable, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Two immutable things. What are the two immutable things or two unchangeable things? Well, it's his promise, which is his word, and it's his oath, his pledge. Okay, those two things, that's his point. By these two things, because he spoke, because he made an oath, it's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible. In fact, remember last week we looked at that word impossible? And I kind of said, is it difficult for God to lie or is it impossible for God to lie? I mean, does he lie sometimes, once in a while? No, it's impossible for God to lie. It's not in his nature. It's not in his character. If you lied, then you've changed. You've said one thing and you really meant another. God is unchanging. So this is his whole point. And Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie. Men do that, but God is not a man, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good when he says he's going to do? That's his whole point. So God's unchangeableness is what separates him from us. He's unchanging. God is inherently good. He always does what is good. He cannot be God and and change or deviate from his nature. If he could, he he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be God if he could lie. His inability to do evil constitute his nature. That's, That's his nature. Now, the author takes these wonderful truths, okay, and the example of Abraham and how he received the promises of God and applies them to us. How does does that fit for the church today? How do those truths affect the New 
Testament church. So he's gone to a, a lot of work to go back to the Old Testament to prove the whole point about, listen, God made promises, but then he made an oath. And he's trying to show by these two things, these unchanging things, he's made these confirming things, that we might have strong consolation. He brings it to effect to the church, that we might have that. Strong consolation is encouragement, comfort. We can have encouragement. We can have strong comfort who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. I, I absolutely love that whole picture. We have fled from the wickedness of the world. We've fled from the reign of Satan. We have fled into Christ for refuge. God is my refuge and strength, right? David wrote about that all the time. He understood the same thing. We find that in Christ. We have fled to Christ. We find refuge in him. Have fled for refuge. Those four words are actually one word in the Greek, kata fugo, to flee away. Now, remember way back when I introduced Hebrews, I told you that the author a lot of times went back and quoted the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Well, this word, kataguo, um, in the Greek translation is the same word used for the cities of refuge. Now, you remember the cities of refuge? I don't have time to go read it, but you can read about it in Numbers 35. But if you accidentally killed someone, God had appointed cities of refuge that were always an easy day's journey away for you to flee to. Why? Well, because you had a really upset brother or sister that wanted to kill you, take revenge, right? You had somebody that wanted to avenge the death of their loved one, and they wanted to kill you. So you could run to this city of refuge. The only catch was is that you had to stay there forever until the priest died. Interesting picture, isn't it? We fled to refuge. Now listen, I was looking at um, David Guzik's uh, commentary on, on this, and he found a wonderful comparison. He puts together a wonderful comparison of Jesus and the cities of refuge, and I'm just going to read it to you. He says this, Both Jesus and the cities of refuge are within an easy reach of the person in need. The place of refuge is of no use if it can't be reached. Both Jesus and the cities of refuge are open to all, not just the Israelite. No one comes to the place of refuge, is turned away in time of need. Both Jesus and the cities of refuge were places to live. In time of need, one never came to a city of refuge just to look around. (laughs) Both Jesus and the cities of refuge are the only alternative for the one in need. Without this refuge, destruction is certain. Both Jesus and the cities of refuge provide protection only within their boundaries. To go outside the provided refuge means death. And both Jesus and the cities of refuge provided full freedom with the death of the high priest. However, there is a crucial distinction between Jesus and the cities of refuge. The cities of refuge only helped the innocent. The guilty can come to Jesus and find refuge. I love that. It was for the innocent. You killed someone accidentally. You didn't mean to kill. But in Christ, we are guilty and we come to him in refuge. We have fled to him in refuge because God's promises are so utterly reliable. He says we can have strong encouragement and comfort those who have fled to him in refuge. For what? To lay hold of the hope set before us. Listen, if you fled to Jesus because of the promises that have been made, then you can lay hold of the hope set before you. You're surely going to find it. That's his point. What or who is the hope set before us? Well, Titus 1-2, it says this, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began. God who cannot lie 
promised eternal life. That is hope, isn't it? The fulfillment of our salvation, which includes the promise of eternal life. That is our hope. We're also told that Jesus is our hope. And that this eternal life was promised even before time began. Only God can promise something before time began and then make it come to pass, right? What hope this must be. We lay hold of this hope only when we come to Jesus. When we turn from our lives of sin and we embrace Christ, we lay hold of this hope. Which is why John says in John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Why? Because it's in him we find refuge. And really, here is the author's whole point. He says, the hope that you have staked your life on, is that going to become a reality? Yes. If it's in Jesus, you can bank on it. Why? Because of, of your faithfulness? Because of how faithful you can be to God? No, because of God's faithfulness to you and to his promises. Amazing. So we see that we can trust in God because of his person and also because of his purposes. But also, one final thing, because of his priest. Look at verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. What a picture this this is. He kind of goes back to those nautical terms we saw early on in chapters 2 and and 3. Don't drift away past the harbor of salvation, that kind of a picture. Right? Instead, flee to Jesus for refuge because there, there's where you can anchor. There's where you can plop your anchor. It's in him. Drop it there. If you drop it there, he's an anchor of the soul. Your soul becomes secure in Christ. Why? Because it's sure, he says. It's firm. It's true. It's a firm anchor. He said also it's steadfast. It's stable. It's, uh, it's sure. It's a firm and stable anchor. If you've ever been on the sea and been in a boat and you were needing to stop drifting, you drop that anchor. And, and your hope is that it's going to hold fast, right? It's going to sit into the sand. It's going to lodge in a rock and it's going to keep you from drifting. But let me ask you, are you able to look down usually and see the anchor? You, you can't see where it is. You know it's there, but you can't see it. Well, that's the picture here. Our spiritual anchor has entered some place we can't even we can't even imagine. It has gone into the presence behind the veil. Enters the presence. Now that goes back to the picture of the tabernacle and the temple. Do you remember looking at that picture? And you have the the veil, the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. Only the only the high priest could go behind that veil, and even once a year. But when Jesus died, what happened to that veil? tore in two, didn't it? And now we can boldly approach the throne room of grace. Remember, we talked about all those things. Well, listen, your anchor goes straight into the Holy of Holies, straight into where God's presence was manifested in that Shekinah uh, glory. But remember, Jesus is our, our high priest. He's the only one that passed through the heavens. He sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. So your, your anchor is, is in the presence of God today. That's where it is. Why can we boldly approach the throne room of grace? You've anchored your hope in the only place to anchor it, where it truly holds, behind the veil, in the presence of God. It's incredible. How is our anchor of hope placed behind that veil? How does that actually happen? Verse 20, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He's the one high priest who entered the eternal 
and actual presence of God. That's his point here. Jesus, our hope, our anchor, has entered the presence. He brings us into the presence of, uh, of God. There was a commentator I wanted to quote here. He had a wonderful quote. Peter O'Brien says, Hope penetrates behind the curtain. That is, believers in hope may now enter where Jesus has already gone in reality, into the heavenly sanctuary. Why? He's our forerunner. He's already gone there. We have access to his presence because our hope is anchored in the work of Jesus as our great high priest. But not just any order of high priest. I, this author, he's pretty good, isn't it? He has tied this all the way back to Melchizedek. Not just any high priest, the high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We've come full circle. Remember a while back, he started to introduce this Melchizedek, and then he paused to give us this, this great warning. And then he, he brings all this back, talking about the promises, talking about your anchor and where that can be. And because of the work of the high priest, who is of the order of Melchizedek? And why I'm on the subject of Melchizedek, he says, let me talk about him. And that's what he's going to do next week. But notice what he says here. He's a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. You know, there's another place in Scripture where God made an oath. I showed you the one today in Genesis 22. Part of it was quoted in chapter 5 verse 6. So that's where we looked at it before, but I want to give you the full quote. It comes from Psalm 110, verse 4. So take a look at this. The Lord has sworn, there's his oath, and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The author quoted that in chapter 5, verse 6, but he didn't quote, the Lord has sworn. He just quoted, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. But listen, that is an oath. It's an oath. God has forever sworn that Jesus Christ would be a forever priest for us, according to the order of Melchizedek, meaning the atoning work of Jesus on the cross secures for us constant, continual access into the presence of God. That is where you anchor your hope. The author declared his confidence in his people that better things that accompany salvation would come about because of God's faithfulness. But at the same time, he encouraged them to be diligent, to imitate those like Abraham, who, who through faith and patience inherited the promises. If there were some who thought they might find hope in the old covenant in, in returning to Judaism, they were mistaken. The priests of the old covenant, they, they can do nothing to anchor their souls, to, to guarantee their sal salvation. Nothing. But Jesus, as our great high priest, he can. Do you want to have that kind of hope? Trust in Jesus. He's the anchor of our soul. And next week, we'll see how he can be a high priest forever according to the order of that mysterious figure, Melchizedek. Let me pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you for the wonderful hope that we have in you. Hope is an anchor of the soul. And Lord, as Franklin Graham said last night even, so many people without hope in this world don't know where to place their hope. They place it in in uh, their jobs, place it in education, place it in finances, financial security, place it maybe in their families and family security, place it in homes, place it in stocks, place it in alcohol, drugs, the place of hope in all kinds of things. None of those things last. None of those things anchor our soul. We see so many people without hope today. There's only one place to find hope. 
Our hope has to be in Jesus. He's the anchor of our soul. He has brought us into the presence of God. Man is separated from God, no ability whatsoever to get right with God, to make our way to God. The world tries to tell people you can just be good and get to God. You can take any mountain you want, any path up the mountain, believe in any religion, follow any path, get to God. God is who you want him to be. God is who you make him. All that's rubbish. All that's a lie. There's only one. There's only one who passed through the heavens. There's only one who is a priest, a high priest forever, who has gone into the presence of God, who has taken the chain, dragged the anchor, and placed it firmly in the throne room of God. And I pray, Lord, that people would hang on to that as their hope. Jesus Christ, the anchor of our soul. Thank you, Lord, for these wonderful words that when you make a promise, when you promise something to your people, we can trust it. How do we know our sins are really forgiven in Jesus? You promised it. How do we know we will have new bodies and be resurrected? It was promised. How do we know we can have eternal life? You promised. How do we know we will live in the presence of Jesus? Because you promised. We know these things. We know them to be true. And yet daily, daily, we forget. So easy to forget. Lord, may we not forget. May we daily be reminded of the hope that we have. Because your word is firm and it's steadfast. And because you are such a gracious God, you even confirmed it with an oath. All the nations of the earth would be blessed through the seed of Abraham, which is Jesus Christ. We, as his children, have been blessed. We are so blessed to know Jesus Christ, so blessed to be called his son, his brother even, brothers of Christ. Amazing, incredible to be in the household of God. Is that real? Is that just pie in the sky thinking? No, promised by God. We can anchor to these things. Thank you, Lord, for the truths that we can hold so firmly to. It does not matter what comes our way. It doesn't matter how much the world changes. It does not matter what circumstances come our way. Your word never changes. So we hold firmly to those truths. Thank you, God, for confirming them for us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.